Dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially the difficult saying of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus says these things, and you shake your head. And it's like, Jesus, did you, did you really mean to say that? Or what is it that you did mean? And this entire sermon prefaced by that hymn that we just sang, uh, 694, Jesus, I my cross have taken. And you get to verse 3. Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. In your service, pain is pleasure, with your favor, loss is gain. And you get to this gospel reading from Luke chapter 14 as Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and he turns to this large crowd that's following him. And I think that's the, the first point that we really have to understand. And maybe you've had that experience also. The experience that I had um, growing up, I was the, the second child, the, what I like to affectionately refer to as the well-adjusted middle child of the three of us. And the interesting part, and the most beneficial part, at least to me, was that my brother, who is older than me, would make the mistakes. And he would need the correction or the guidance, and I just got to be a fly on the wall, a little bit of a bystander, as mom or dad explained not only what he should have done, but also why. That when they were giving the lesson, I was just the one listening in and learning a little bit to hopefully avoid at least that problem and I could invent my own problems to come up with when I got to that age. And that's kind of the example that we have here in our gospel lesson. That Jesus isn't specifically talking to believers. In this gospel lesson, he's talking to this large crowd that is following him. This large crowd that has been swelling and pretty soon it's going to grow even more as he gets to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is on his final trip to Jerusalem. And the people hear this Jesus talk and they see what this Jesus has done and they're like, hey, this is, this is pretty cool. This is awesome. I should follow this guy. He has good things to say. He has wonderful things to do. He's got a lot to offer. And Jesus turned to that crowd the crowd who had only been following him a short period of time in what comes across as, well, at least from my perspective, would it be the, the best foot forward or the best evangelism speech that you might offer? But Jesus brings the heat. He turns to this crowd, this, this new group of prospects that is following him, and he says, if anyone of you doesn't, doesn't hate his family, and his very own life, and give up any, everything for the sake of the gospel, then he cannot be my disciple. Wow. Hate. That's the word. That when we got to that and we finished the, the reading, and one of the kids said, what does Jesus mean? I don't want to hate my family. And I think that's the first part we should at least discuss a little bit. That when we talk about what Jesus says about hating um, his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, his very own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I think by getting into that, we have to flip it around to the way that Jesus describes love. Because conceptually, they are very similar. 
when Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you, he's talking about love as an action. Love that is an objectively good action that doesn't necessarily line up with the way that you feel. And that's the point. That for the Christian, when we talk about love, it means acting in a way that might or might not act line up with the way that you feel. You know, hopefully when we're talking about love, then it's this heart of love that demonstrates itself in action. It's an emotion that exercises itself in what it does. But it doesn't always have to be like that. Because Jesus and the rest of Scripture says, love those who hate you, who are your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Talking about an action for the good of the other. So then, when he talks about hatred, hate those who are close to you. Conceptually, it's kind of the same thing. That despite the way you feel about somebody, you don't necessarily act in line with that that you can have this strong feeling of emotion towards somebody that you love, such as your, uh, your own father and mo or mother, wife or children, brothers or sisters. You have this strong feeling of, of emotion and, and love toward them. But that following Jesus might mean acting in a way that doesn't necessarily line up with that. Following Jesus might mean acting in a way that is comes across as, as even unloving for the sake of Jesus. Because what he isn't encouraging here is, is an action or an attitude that puts somebody down. But what he is saying is to separate the way you feel about somebody from what they need to see from you for their own spiritual good. And also... Separate the way you feel from some, towards somebody from the way that they treat you because of your association with Jesus. It's a little bit to kind of think our way into it, but I think that at least helps a little bit. That when he talks about he does not hate his father and mother, spouse and children, it's definitely meant to be jarring and to be grating on our ears, to catch our attention and to say that there's more at stake here than just what we see in this world. There's more at stake here than, than just following Jesus because he's such a good teacher. To so these large crowds that had followed him, Jesus turns and he catches their attention. And then he follows it up. He follows it up with the express purpose of getting across the major point. Because the major point isn't about hating or acting in a way that doesn't line up with our emotion. He has two parables where he talks about counting the cost, the cost of discipleship, about the one who sits down and wants to build a tower and doesn't do all the cost estimates and, and the contract estimates and then isn't able to complete the project. And the other one about counting the cost ahead of time, the king who takes a census of his military and gets the report on the group that is coming toward him and says, well, can I defend with 10,000 against this group of 20,000? And in both parables, Jesus is driving at the same thing, that to follow Jesus means a cost. And the reason that I kind of describe this as listening in 
perhaps on the, the sibling who is getting corrected by mom or dad. The reason I kind of describe this as listening in as Jesus is talking to those who are following him for no particular reason at all is that this isn't new to you. I'm fairly confident with that. That when Jesus says um, that your relationships on earth might be strained or might be different because of your association with Jesus, when Jesus says that as a Christian, you will, as a result of being a Christian, you will have to bear a cross that the unbeliever has no concept of, and that as a Christian, people may ridicule, persecute you, or... Um, or bear false witness against you and give you a bad name for no other reason than the sin in their own hearts and for no other reason than your association with Jesus, that maybe you are the one in your family with the reputation of being a Christian. And then everybody else, everybody else can say and do as they wish, but if you step off that line that they expect ever so slightly, but I thought you were the Christian. And the hatred that he talks about here is talking about the reality that Christians will experience as a result of their connection to Christ. And I know that, that many of you have borne and have carried some of that, that pain. You've had to try to, to parse out, you know, how can I provide a clear Christian witness to these people that I care about? When, try as I might, there's no defense against somebody who wants to slander my name. That even if I have the purest of intentions and I think through my actions and plan them out like weeks ahead of time and I state it as clearly as possible, somebody else can take my words and distort them and cast it aside and together with it can cast aside any thought of this Jesus. Well, look what you did, and look what you said, and you call yourself a Christian. If that's the way that Christians are, I want no part of that. And as somebody who has been a follower of Jesus before these large crowds came along, I'm certain that you've had to deal with some of that, not necessarily having that, you know, implementing some action that doesn't line up with your feeling, such as hatred, but definitely caring and bearing the hatred of others in a way that cuts to the core of your Christian identity and your Christian being. That it's attributed not just to what you said or how you said it, but it's attributed to that Jesus as though, as though the way you said things and the way you did things is as a result of being a Christian. And that's what he's talking about. As you and I get to listen in, and he talks to this large crowd that's following him, and he turns to them, and he says, you need to take a big picture view of things. That if you want to follow Jesus, Jesus here in Luke 14 is still on his way to the cross. If you want to follow Jesus, then pick up your cross and follow him. If you want to follow Jesus, don't walk into this um, with no idea of what suffering might be involved. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to, at the very least, count whatever cost is going to be too much for you. Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. 
And by ourselves, at least for me, I'm not there. I'm not there. Come disaster, scorn, and pain, please have my name dragged through the mud for no particular reason, have my life destroyed, and have people hate me, not because, not because I've been a, a crook, but because they want to find some way to try to tear down Jesus, and they can't rebury a resurrected Jesus, so they'll have to try to tear down the ones who bear his cross and carry his name. And that's the heart of it. That as we listen in on this conversation, I know that you and I, and you've probably experienced it even to a, a greater degree, that experience of being hated or having your motives questioned or needing to count the cost of the relationships on earth and how your relationship to Jesus changes that. But as we sit down and we count the cost, what Jesus is most of all driving toward is what he promises and what he gives. That his measure of value is of a totally different sort than the world. That his measure of value isn't the number of people who show up at your funeral, but the reality that at, when you pass out of this world, that he has taken you to heaven. That his measure of value is not the amount in the account, but the riches of heaven. The riches of his forgiveness distributed and given to you. That when we talk about when we talk about the, the blessings that Jesus has given, his measure of value doesn't depend anything on you or I and what we bring to the table, aside from our sin. But his measure of value is all that he gives. All that he gives. And he says, dear Christian, if you flip this around just a little bit, dear Christian, do you see that this Jesus has given you a blessing in that forgiveness of sins and life and salvation, he's given you a blessing that surpasses anything this world has to offer. That even if your family were to turn their back on you for the rest of your life, what of it? You've got an eternity ahead of you with a family who is closer in faith and closer in reality than the people who might even be related to you by blood. And even if the world, in whatever iteration they take on, may attack you and besmirch your name and say, well, you Christian, you um, Bible-believing Christian, you are the one who is the real problem here. Even if the world should try to distort the words of Jesus and say that, well, Christians, you ought to feel this way about whatever the most popular issue of the day is. You ought to feel this way about, um, you know, immigration or student loan forgiveness or you name it. And they'll take that word of God and distort it and try to, try to smear the Christian for the sake of Christ. Jesus, I and my cross have taken all to leave and follow you. Destitute, despised, forsaken, you on earth once suffered too. And when we sing that, and when we see what Jesus says here about a reality that you and I have already experienced, and that you and your children and perhaps your grandchildren may continue to experience, we do catch the warning. 
to sit down and count the cost. But even more, we do catch the blessing to sit down and treasure the value. To treasure the value of the fellowship that we share together. To treasure the value of gathering together around his table and not only being able to see one another who are as close to you or I as a brother or sister in Christ, but also each one individually receiving that same forgiveness of sins, that same promise that you have life now with Jesus and forever in heaven. That if it's simply about value and counting a cost, <laughs> there's no comparison. There's no comparison between what you or I might suffer here, whether it's something overt like persecution or something more subtle or simply a relationship difficulty. Whatever it is, whatever you or I might suffer here is of no comparison to what Jesus has given. That this Jesus is the same one who had you in mind and chose you to be his own. He did the work. That the same Jesus is the one who washed away your sins and gave you new life with him. He did the work. That the same Jesus, as he's going to the cross, says, come and follow me. And it's going to be difficult, but he'll continue to do the work. He'll continue to do the work to say, dear Christian, this is worth it. This is worth it. And that even if, even if all of the world were to turn against you completely, they can't take away what Jesus has given and continues to give. And that's every reason for joy and every reason for treasuring what Jesus values after we count that cost. But then together with that, I guess the, the practical side of things related to um, what Moses says from Deuteronomy chapter 30 when Moses is speaking to believers directly. Then he says, the choices that you make today have value also for your children and for the generation after. That the choices that you make today have value also for those who follow after you. And in that sense, I mean, that's why we have, have catechism. That'll be starting in two weeks. That's why we have a doctrine class also starting in two weeks so that you and I can talk about these things and so that you can be equipped and have the understanding to say, this is what I believe, and not only what I believe, but also why I believe it. But that's also why, when we talk about, talk, talk about catechism and confirmation, why we have a little bit longer of an instruction period, and, um, and we'll you know, aim for confirmation to fall typically in, in the fall, in the autumn time, closer to reformation, and away from graduation time in the springtime. Because however old you were when you stood before the Lord's altar, do you intend to remain faithful to your Lord and put up with everything, persecution, ridicule, and even bullying and even death, rather than give up on this Jesus? I do, with the help of God. That's the work that we carry out. And that's the value that our Jesus has placed on you. A value that said that having you in heaven with him was of greater value than his own life, was of enough value for him to be rejected by his brothers and sisters, to have them come and say, Jesus, I think you're a little crazy. We should commit you to the asylum. And he looked around and he said, who are my mother and my brothers? 
he looked at you and me. Here are my mother and my sister and my brothers. Here is the value that Jesus gives, the fellowship together, a forgiveness and the hope and the purpose of a future, a future forever in heaven that goes beyond anything and everything the world could throw your way or take away from you. Amen. Amen.